Good morning again. If you would please turn to the book of Philippians. I'll be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Philippians 1, 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Father, many brothers, sisters, have tasted those words in the hour of their torture and death in a way that we can't imagine, but we want to. We want to be prepared to always stand courageous for the truth in the midst of persecution. And so to that end, I ask that you by your spirit, bring us into this central core reality of Christianity that for Christ's sake, for the gospel's sake, for the love of God and of the world, your truth is worth dying for. Help us. Help us see it. Help us see your glory in it. To the glory and magnification of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I know it's the third week, at least, in this little verse 21 but this morning, we see that it brings us face to face with the subject of martyrdom. In order that you don't miss Paul's point here in verse 21, just glance over to the next page for a second. Right there in chapter 2, verse 17. Even if I am to be killed, martyred, that's what it means, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. That's what he means. That Pray for me that I will stand with full courage now. In prison, awaiting trial. If convicted, I will be sentenced to death. But that instead Christ will be honored in my body as he has been the last couple decades and he will continue to be honored in my body. Whether I'm allowed to live or whether I am put to death. For Christ's sake. Because to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
You think, you think Paul knew the words of Jesus from Luke 21 when he said to his disciples, but before all of this that I just told you about, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. I think he knew them. Christianity is a religion of martyrdom. To die is gain means, even if I'm martyred, I, Paul, cannot lose. The martyrs of church history are not dead. They're around the throne of God. They're in the presence of Christ, worshiping thousands upon thousands of Christian martyrs are right now praising God in his presence because they said and believed for me to live as Christ. And to die is gain. They all said Christ is worth more than this life. He's worth more than falling in love. He's worth more than marrying, having children. Parenting my children until they are all raised. He is worth more than finishing my career or enjoying retirement or that dream house or dream cruise or world travel. Many Christians throughout the centuries were faced with, go home, go home to your spouse and your children and your, your stuff or be burned to death the stake. It's your choice. Deny that book you wrote. Recant. Deny Christ. Deny your theology. And go home. And many refused to go home. But were burned alive a mistake. Now, the word martyr, we have this word in our English lexicon, it comes from the New Testament, it comes from the Greek word martus. Martus means witness. Remember in the beginning of Acts, Jesus told his apostles, but you will be my witnesses, my, my martures. Early on in the church, this word witness or martus came to refer 
to blood witness. Like the second century writing titled The Martyrdom of Polycarp. He was born in about 60 or 70 AD. He was, as a young man, he knew the apostle John, but he marched to his death refusing to deny Christ. He was the bishop of Smyrna. Jesus, at the end of the first century, said to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful Martus. Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so the stories of the martyrs in church history, they press upon us the question, do we love Christ more than we love life here and now? King David answered that question and many, many martyrs most clearly had these words of David burning in their hearts from Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. The love of God for these martyrs is that my loving Him, His love for me better than life. It's better to die for that love of God than to go on living here without it. Tertullian, an early church father, flourishing in the late 100s into 220 AD, he wrote to the Roman governors these words. As often as you mow us down, the more numerous we become, the blood of the Christians is seed. He was simply saying that death doesn't stop the witness that we give of Christ Jesus. It just adds an exclamation point to the truth, to the faithfulness of his people, and to Jesus' people's love for the glory of God. It is the supreme witness, the witnessing act for Christ in the gospel. And so we see that the Greek word martus, you can hear the word there, right? Martus, martyr. It means witness, but it came very early on to refer to those who witnessed with their life, who were killed because of their faith in Jesus. They were killed because they were faithful witnesses. And a 
happened so often in the early church that martus, the martyr, it meant that person witnessed unto death. And we see the first martyr in the church in the New Testament that we have recorded is Stephen, stoned to death because he gave a faithful witness. And later, as Tertullian would say, it's the seed. It's like planting a seed. When you do that, all you're going to get is more. And Luke lets us know that the persecution that arose after Stephen actually the Lord used to spread the gospel further as they were chased out of Jerusalem and to Samaria and the rest of Judea, preaching. And then we see the apostle James, son of Zebedee. He was the first apostle to be martyred by having a sword in his life. Because of Herod. And from there a great outpouring again of prayer because they apprehended Peter. Lord, don't let it happen to Peter. Herod says that he's next. And God who is sovereign chose. Nope. Not time, Peter. For you to die. For me. There'll be a time, Peter. James, it was his time, I let it happen, and he springs Peter. Near the end of the first century, James's brother, the apostle John, had a vision, and he saw in heaven the souls of many who were martyred. Listen to how he puts it in Revelation 6, 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been killed for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves were. There is a number appointed by the Lord, and that number must be fulfilled before His second coming before the consummation of the kingdom. Rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Martyrdom is not an accident. It does not take God off guard. It is not un unexpected. It may look like defeat, but it is part of God's plan from heaven that no human strategist would ever devise, nor could. The death of Stephen must have stunned the early Jerusalem church that God would allow their most brilliant spokesperson to be killed, but through it, God spread the gospel. 
the Apostle James, it, it's, he's probably killed in the early 40s. Less, probably about eight years, seven years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. James, not just one of the 12, but one of the inner circle three, Jesus poured so much time into him and Peter and John, and he allows him to be killed instead of having a 40-year ministry. The deaths of Peter, Paul, under Nero, in Rome, in the 60s, must have really shaken the believers of this new Christian movement since two of their preeminent leaders were so brutally treated by the state, by the government. And then for the next 300 years, Christianity grew, and it grew in the context of the blood of many martyrs. Now in the first century, even as you see in the book of Acts, in persecution, and jail time, and death, well, it wasn't legal in the sense that Christianity was legally set in Roman law as an illegal religion. But persecution was allowed. And then by the end of the first century, in AD 98, when the emperor Trajan came to power, persecution then of Christians became legal because it's illegal to be a Christian. So if rulers so chose to use that law and persecute over the next 150 years... They did. And so during that period of time, persecution would rise up over here for a little bit and then die down and rise up over there, maybe die down in this province over here. It was sporadic, but real and could be intense until about 250 A.D. when Decius came to power. From 250 all the way to 311 when Constantine came to power and you have the edict of toleration of Christianity, it was horrifically brutal throughout the empire. The persecution, the killing, the torture of Christians who refused to deny their Savior. The, the great church historian Philip Schaff referring to that period, puts it this way. Horror spread everywhere through the congregations. And the number of lapsi, you hear the word lapse in their faith, the number of lapsi, that is, the ones who renounced their faith when they were threatened, that number was enormous. There was no lack, however, of such as remained firm and suffered martyrdom rather than yielding. And as the persecution grew wider and more intense, the enthusiasm of the Christians and their power of resistance grew stronger and stronger. So from Stephen to James to Paul, writing while in prison this epistle, to the Philippians, to later Paul and Peter being put to death by the Roman Empire. 
and you take the first three centuries, those first 300 years to be a Christian was an act of risk. An act of risk to one's life or possessions or family or freedom. It was a test of what you love most. And at the extreme end of that test for many was martyrdom. And above that martyrdom was a sovereign God who said, there is an appointed number who are to be killed for their witness to the gospel. Augustine, the great persecution ended probably about 70 to 80 years before he writes these words in his great book, The City of God. Despite the fiercest opposition, the terror of the greatest persecutions, Christians have held with unswerving faith to the belief that Christ has risen, that all men will rise in the age to come, and that the body will live forever. And this belief, proclaimed without fear, has yielded a harvest throughout the world and all the more when the martyr's blood was the seed they sowed. So you could go on Amazon.com and go click, click, and purchase the book titled Fox's Book of Martyrs, filled with particular examples of gruesome deaths of Christians over the first 1,600 years of the church. He wrote it in the 1,500s. Persecution that is short of martyrdom and of death, it might look something like John Bunyan. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read it, you really should. There is a good reason why I think it's still true. It's the most sold book in history outside the Bible. But John Bunyan, in the 1600s, he wrote the book around 1650, he spent 12 years in jail. His crime was because he was preaching the gospel, holding church meetings on a farm outside of Bedford, England. Why? Because he was not a sanctioned preacher by the government. He was a nonconformist. And it was in England illegal to pastor people, to preach more than, to more than five persons without having been ordained by an Anglican bishop. And during that 12 years, Bunyan could have been free and walked home any moment. All he had to do was promise he would not preach again. Bunyan said that the parting from his wife and his six kids, one of them a little girl who was totally blind, 
in poverty and he's in jail. He said it was like pulling off my flesh from my bones. Later he would write about his experience of those 12 years in jail, which, which tells the kind of torture that he went through. He said, Oh, I saw in this condition that I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Hans Brett, he was executed on January 4th. 1577, after eight painful months of imprisonment in Holland. On the morning of his being burned at the stake, the executioner clamped his tongue with a metal screw device and seared it with a hot iron in order to make it swell so that he would not testify of Christ as he was burned in the public square. And on and on and on, church history goes, with story after story after story of faithful witnesses. In the 1950s, some of you have seen the movie, five Wheaton College graduates were martyred by the Aka tribe that they were trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus and was eventually reached. But those five men were killed, martyred by them. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Yadorian. Their martyrdom ended up being, like Tertullian said, 1,600 years earlier, it was the seed that, that grew more dedication coming out from this country into world missions and saying it's worth the risk to go to dangerous places. And much of that seed growing came from the strength of the five wives they left behind. Like Elizabeth Elliot. Or Barbara. Eudorian, the wife of Roger, who wrote in her diary on that night in 1956 these words. Tonight the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt in blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore them. God gave me this verse two days ago. Psalm 48, 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be 
our guide even unto death. As I came face to face, With the news of Raj's death, my heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his home going. Help me, Lord, to be both mommy and daddy. Hussein Suman, a 55-year-old pastor, was hanged. to death in Iran, December 3rd, 1990, after being tortured for a month in prison. And he was just one example. His crime, converting from Islam to Christianity. From the website I went on to this week, the, called The Open Doors, where they monitor the persecution of Christians. They write, Today, in the 21st century, we are living in a time when persecution against believers is the highest in modern history. Persecution is increasing at an alarming rate. Each day, a staggering 11 Christians are killed for their faith in the top 50 countries ranked on the world watch list. Countries like North Korea and Afghanistan and Iran. So, let me just, before I close, make it crystal clear because of the times in, in which we live. And that's this, there is a radically fundamental, huge difference between Christian martyrs and so-called suicide terrorist martyrs. Those suicide terrorists are evil and they're murderers. The life of a Christian martyr is killed by those whom he or she wants to save by the gospel of Christ. The martyr for Jesus does not commit suicide and does not use violence and bombs and guns against his adversaries to the gospel. Christian martyrs do not pursue death. They pursue love. Love for God in their loving others. And thus they don't advance the gospel with violence. Jesus, that very day he will be killed, said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what Paul means. For me to live is Christ and to preach his kingdom here. To die is gain. 
The martyrs live in an unseen kingdom with a promise of the consummation of that kingdom one day. And thus, they can lay down their lives because Jesus will take it up again. My kingdom, Pilate, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Christianity advances not by the shedding of the blood of others. It advances by suffering in order to bring life, real life, and not to bring suffering to those it wants to reach. As we read earlier Jesus' words, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus went to his death, took up his cross, and said, take up your cross and follow me. Three days later, he took up his body, new immortality, the only one as of yet raised from the dead. But he will raise all those who were his. And in that resurrection body over those next few weeks after that, he sat on a beach on the Sea of Galilee and he looked Peter in the eye and he told him by what kind of a death he would be a martyr. And the way John puts it is he told him how he will be martyred in order to glorify God. Jesus told Paul that he would have to suffer many things because of his carrying the gospel message to the nations. And a couple decades after Jesus told him that, Paul said to a group of Christians in a church meeting, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And now, as he sits in prison in Rome a few years after that, he writes these words. Philippians, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed of Christ, that I don't deny him, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Because to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. 
I can't lose. Dear Philippians, and neither can you. And so, the frightening question to all of us when we hear such stories, and it was frightening to those who were martyrs, it is the question, will you stand on whatever degree of the pendulum of persecution at the end is martyrdom and then there's loss of stuff and loss of job and loss of reputation will you stand with full courage for the truth for the truth of the scripture for the truth of what God reveals about humanity and our sinfulness and about His glory. For, for the truth that there are two sexes. For the truth that heterosexual sex is sinful outside of marriage. For the truth that homosexual sex, homosexuality is sin. For the truth that there is only one Savior to bring any of us sinful human beings to God safely and to enjoy Him forever instead of an eternal punishment. And that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Will you stand with full courage for the truth of the gospel in the midst of the growing cultural threats and the potential for suffering and persecution and who knows, maybe even death. And the answer is only by the grace of God, only by the power of God's grace, sustaining and keeping and growing Only in times of peace as we allow His work in our hearts to mature us will we be ready the next day when the unexpected comes. Let's pray. Father, You were so good in the gospel of your son. You didn't spare him. You delivered him up for us all. And therefore how shall you not also by him. And with him freely give us all things. And that is why then your apostle Paul goes on to say. That neither life nor death. Nor imprisonment. Nor sword. Nor martyrdom. Nothing. Nothing could ever. Ever separate us. From your love to us very personal love to us in Christ Jesus whom you sent to actually die for every one that you have given to him. You are good. 